Hello, and welcome to the Transcending CRM podcast, a show where we explore how the Salesforce ecosystem has impacted the careers of fellow trailblazers and the businesses that have leveraged dynamic growth from the platform. This podcast is brought to you by Silverline. Silverline is a Salesforce digital transformation consultancy headquartered in New York City, specializing in financial services, media and entertainment, and healthcare industries. I'm your host, JP Owens, Managing Director of Banking and Lending at Silverline, along with my co-host, Elliot Spence, Principal Consultant at Silverline. Hey, Elliot. JP, how's it going? I'm excited to record with our distinguished guest today. It's going to be a great episode. Very distinguished guest, and we're going to switch up the format today. I know we typically do more of an interview format, but today is going to be more of an open discussion on a couple of topics that we're constantly talking about related to Financial Services Cloud. So with that, we're going to welcome Michael Sherrill, a distinguished enterprise architect from Salesforce. Michael, can you take a moment to tell us about yourself and your current role? Yeah, that, that distinguished title throws people. It's like the top hat, cane, monocle come with it. So my role at Salesforce is really, I sit between a lot of the sales teams and some of the, the technical teams on the back end. So what I do is I partner with our sales folks, the SEs, the TAs, and we start to understand what the organizations we work with want to achieve in terms of their business prioritizations and where their strategic growth, they view their strategic growth is going over the next few years and figure out where Salesforce plays well and how it plays well inside of their tech stack to help them meet those goals. This is typically when I, when I engage, it's, I have to tell the salespeople to like cover their ears because my role isn't necessarily to sell additional products and to help them sell additional products. It's really to understand what are the challenges that our collective customers are facing in financial services, and how can we help solve some of those through technology, hopefully with the unstated thing of Salesforce's that solution. And Michael, I, I, so when you talk about having these conversations, I think the first topic I want to get into that I, I feel like we have this conversation less nowadays, but we definitely were having it all the time three, four or five years ago, is financial services cloud, the industry clouds. What are you getting in financial services cloud over traditional sales and service? And how do you think about that architecture? And, and what's the value proposition that you're helping your sales team, as well as the clients you're interacting with to really recognize the value they're going to get from the platform? So I think JP and you and I first met each other in 2018 um, when you were at your previous employer and I was at my previous employer. If you had said FSC when it was in its infancy, it, it would have given some pause of let's make sure that what is being recommended fits with what you want from both a functionality and a data model perspective. And a lot of that trepidation was about really about person accounts that when I first started in Salesforce or on Salesforce technology in about 2012, 2013, um, person accounts was like a dirty word. You didn't want to touch that capability. If someone brought it up, it was like, no, God, no, don't do that. It, the platform itself has evolved in terms of how we manage person accounts and really the data model that sits around it. So that starts to benefit looking at using financial services cloud. And if we then subdivide that and where do you see the value in looking at traditional sales and service cloud relative to financial services cloud? It's in how you view your customers. It's how the functionality that Salesforce is developing as a platform, it has developed as a platform to fit some of those use cases. So when I think of some of the customers we were talking about in 2017, 2018, 2019, that were just on traditional sales cloud, 
they had custom built the data model to support financial services. So like objects to support financial accounts, objects to visualize transactional information, using stuff like DLRS to do roll-ups, where Salesforce now natively does that with financial services cloud. And some of the additional capabilities that have been layered on. And even more recently, when we think of things like Velocity and Omni Studio that allow you to create more enhanced digital experiences for customers and members that become the huge benefit and uplift over what you would typically get out of a, a sales cloud or a service cloud. And I like that you brought up, um, like you, you talk about companies that like, you know, we're just going to build our own. And I hear that, I still hear that pretty common, it, you know, across the across the ecosystem where people are like, you know what, I'm just going to build my own. Now it's it's on you and your team and your organization to support that. And you don't get any of these upgrades. You know, Salesforce has their three releases a year and they're constantly upgrading financial services cloud and all the all the tools that you get with it. You know, as as we all know, it's a mixture of sales and service cloud. So you get case management, you get your opportunities, you get your lead management. And now with features like branch management, restriction rules, compliant data sharing, tear sheets, Omni Studio that is now natively built in. You don't, if you're building your own, you don't get any of that. And you're constantly having to evolve and support your own data model that you've built into it. And you don't get any of those nice features that now come natively with FSE. Well, even, even beyond just those feature sets, you're now in your technology team, your administration team, your DevOps team is inheriting all that tech debt that comes along mm -hmm. with building all that stuff. Yes, can you build FSD on your own? Sure. Do you want to invest the time and energy into doing that? Or do you just want to buy the platform that has that stuff natively and do the what we love, the configuration of uh, configuration, not code? And, the, and the, the other thing that you talked about is, and it's 100% true, like years ago, I used to think, oh my gosh, person accounts? We're going to, oh gosh, we got to transition. Now it's like, you're working on projects like, why are we not using person accounts? You know, it's now it's like, it's like second nature. I'm always assuming we're working with person accounts and I love the person account model. Was it a pain at first? Absolutely. But it was a transition and the change of going from contacts to person accounts. Now that you know it and the, it's what we're used to, it's when you're working with contacts, it's kind of strange. You know, I had to go back and think about, all right, how do I make, how do I make this all work? Cause I'm so used to person accounts. Uh, well, even worse than that, I had a customer earlier today want to talk to talk about they still have people using classic. It's like, oh wow, that that's, I haven't heard yeah, that. In a I long became time. an admin first time around with classic, so I was always that person jumping back over to the classic view to do all my admin activities. So I'm glad there's still a few people holding out out there. There's still there's still a few things that you need to jump back in the classic to do, and it's it's always a a curveball when you find that thing like where where is this, and you find oh you got to go to classic to do it, such as who has access to different price books if you're using those, you know, you got to go and add the role in classic. Well, the weird part is that this was in conjunction with the data cloud conversation. It's like you want to leverage a new capability, but half the people on your platform can't do any of that because it's all exposed to lightning web components. Well, and, and talk, speaking to data, I know you mentioned the person account piece, which is, it's funny now thinking back on it. Cause I, we've had to spend months trying to find like finalize our conversion from account contact to person accounts. Cause it's one thing to, commit to doing it, but like getting all the residual cleanup done and really making sure people have changed the way they're doing things and your reporting and then how you're connecting to your marketing tools. But the, the one thing we've been spending a lot of time on recently, and some of this is Salesforce users for years, some of it's people who don't have it, and some are just trying to figure out, not just from a Salesforce perspective, but as they think about all their platforms, how do they get to the data model that's going to make most sense for them? And 
I know we have worked together before, Michael, on trying to help people get on the platform and they'll hand you over a system diagram of 40 systems and say, well, tell me how you're going to get all this in Salesforce. And it's like, well, let's let's dive through all of these and understand what people are using them for, how critical the data is, maybe is it in other systems? How do we get you into that unique ID, not just like a person account model, but the householding model and really having a strong data strategy? Can you talk a little bit about how you've been approaching that? And then Elliot, I'd love for you to weigh in too on some of that. I'll, I'll drop the, the big data cloud bomb right out of the gate and say that a lot of where we're focusing some of our effort on creating some of those unified profiles is how does data cloud serve as that centralizing source? So as you're bringing different data sets into Salesforce, how, how does that ultimately link? How do you create those linkages between the various data sources to stitch together that unified profile view? How are you using that to activate the information inside of an FSE org or inside of marketing cloud or pushing something through like an event stream to, to SageMaker or some other external model that, that may consume the output of it? Where I see interest and I have a lot of the conversations is around if you extract data cloud from the conversation, how, how and where does Salesforce sit in terms of an MDM implementation and is... It comes to shifting the conversation away from a lot of people start to think of Salesforce as a system of a record. And it's like, no, Salesforce is a system of engagement. Understand where your systems of record are. Understand what those what creates those ties between a customer, a member, their financial account, their transactions, all the behavioral information, all the demographic information, and how that information gets tied together to ultimately serve to a commercial lender or a residential mortgage lender inside of FSC um, to make the data pertinent. We don't get into really deep dives in terms of the actual data mapping exercise. We get more into the strategy around understanding what are the commonalities of the identifiers that could be used across system. And are you using, do you have a TIN or an uh, EIN or an SSN that you can tie off of? Are you using some kind of Encapnated string of different values to create that single identifier, and this gets to—I um, know you guys create some of the those tools inside of Salesforce to to start stitching data together for a few of the customers we've worked together on. So I think it comes down to what are the what are the data sources, what what's the commonality in the data that exists between those data sources? How do you stitch it together, and how do you ultimately serve it up to the users? Yeah, when I get into um talking about data and everything, I'm typically looking at what what do they need in a system right away? And what is like, what is the data that pretty much are gonna be using daily? What are they gonna be using, you know, for like quarterly reporting? And how quickly does that data need to get into Salesforce? Looking at, in most of our projects also, we're looking at so like a marketing cloud or a Pardot as well. So is there other data in there that maybe the commercial lenders, or the retail bankers, they may not be using, but we're gonna need these data points for some kind of journey we're doing through marketing cloud. So those, those are other considerations that we typically take take in when we're doing the first pass of, you know, where does the data sit? What are these data sources? And what are the needs within the platform? Because there's other things outside of the bankers, the maybe even the contact center, if you're doing something there for like verification purposes, if you're going to be doing that out of Salesforce. But, you know, there's also those marketing aspects that sometimes play into decision making as well. Well, the, the, you bring up a good point in terms of the data movement. I always, whenever I have conversations with customers about what systems are they wanting to integrate, it's how fast do those data sets move 
And are you driving the data to the users in the timeliness in which they needed to make business decisions? Or are you always lagging 24 hours behind? So that gets into, do your platforms that you have in place today support real-time integration? Are you, do you use Code Connect? Do you have Communicator Advantage? Do you have MuleSoft? Like what, what are the platforms? What's the data and the timeliness of the moves? The other piece of it is, how do you do your operational reporting at a tactical level and enterprise reporting at, at a strategic level to understand how, where a line of business user may see what they need to see, what data drives their reporting inside of Salesforce if they're using CRMA or if they're embedding like Power BI dashboards, or do they have an external Tableau implementation for cross-line of business reporting up through senior management, and how are they consuming data into those various platforms for, for reporting? Turning the page a little bit on this, what are some of the features in FSC that you see clients not really using much that you feel like, man, this is a feature that is a game changer. Why, why do we not see more adoption with it? What are some things that clients or prospects can, should consider out of FSC that they're not really considering today? I, one, of the, one of the smaller ones is likely to be record alerts. Um, I think that that's really cool and it's very underutilized in terms of if you have an external fraud identification system and you want to be able to surface something that like a fraud notification has appeared on this person's checking account, being able to use those record alerts to ping certain records or to put a notification at the top. The other one, Elliot, you know, I were talking about this this morning, separate from this entire conversation is business rules engine. We've been working with some of the Omni Studio experts internally to understand how it could be used for like pre-qualification for loan applications, pre-qualification for mortgage applications. So defining the decision matrices and the, what are the, how are you querying external data sets, bringing that information in? Like if you're getting a credit score and ultimately doing some level of decisioning on that, you can extrapolate that out and say, could it be used for an entire loan origination decisioning? Probably. Um, I don't know if we've seen it at that scale yet. Yeah, I was doing a messing around with it as well this morning after you and I talked and doing some training around it. And I like it for a few reasons. Number one, it's a no-code solution. So you don't have to be somebody that is an expert in JSON or an expert in Apex to be able to set up business rules engine. And you can kick it off from a variety of sources. It can be kicked off via Apex, kicked off, like you said, with Omni Studio, kicked off with a ScreenFlow. And the other piece I really like about it, which... You know, it's something that people really don't think a lot about when they're setting up a solution like this, but it's explainable. So if you have like a, a like you said, like somebody's user for like loan underwriting, you know, do they automatically qualify for this product or something? But yes, they do or no, they do not. Why do they or why do they not? And it has, oh, you don't qualify for it. Why? Because, you know, you have a bankruptcy in the last seven years, your credit score is too low. Those variety of factors that play into that decision is there for you to read and see, and it's something I was talking about yesterday during a lunch and learn around AI, when you're talking about AI data, which is kind of what business rules engine kind of appears at when you're using it as like a screen flow, it's like, oh, it already decisioned it. Well, yes or no, why? You gotta be able to explain, you know, the decision that was made, why was that decision made? And that's something business rules engine plays and gives you. The, the other cool things about it is that you can fire it from, like, think of a, a very complex loan origination process. You can have Flow Orchestrator running some of the more macro processes in, inside of that, the loan origination piece, call a subflow that, that calls a business rules engine decision, decision process 
that then calls an integration procedure to get your credit score and return it. And it can be all that can be stored in virtual memory to be used throughout the rest of the decisioning process too, which is pretty nifty. Yeah, the use case that I was messing around with this morning and I watched a couple of videos about it as well was uh, you know, getting like a, a loan, an auto not a loan, but an auto insurance quote. So, you know, my state is this, my, you know, this is my age, this is the vehicle I drive. Have do I have any, you know, tickets, auto tickets in the past? you know, five years, yes or no. And based on all your answers that you give, and it can be a customer doing it in experience cloud, or they fill that out and it gives them a instant quote. And here's your quote, here's why your quote is this, you know, it's, it, it's explainable. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Some of the, one of the um, features that I think that I personally, I haven't messed around with a lot that I need to start messing around with more. Um, but I, you know, I haven't done an FSC project in a little while, but restriction rules, I think those are pretty, pretty awesome because you're so used to it as like a, a Salesforce admin or somebody messing around with profiles, permission sets, roles, and then it comes down to, which is very common in financial services, you know, I as a retail lender or somebody, I should be able to see everything or they should be able to see everything except for a board member or except for an employee account. And it gets kind of hard to hide those without, you know, you typically would need to use org-wide sharing rules and things like that. Well, with restriction rules, it's super easy to set up and make it even more complex than just board member or employee, but hiding certain records based on different rules. I think restriction rules is a a pretty awesome feature that I don't think gets enough enough use these days. That's a good one. I, I hadn't even thought of that. I'm looking at an FSC capability makeup map on my monitor right now, and that's not even listed. And I want to go to the person who made this and be like, you, you guys are talking a lot about the features, but I think another thing worth calling out is once you've stood stood up FFC and you take advantage of some of the common features that I think everybody talks about, lead referrals, action plans, some of the, I guess, maybe the more in-depth use cases you guys just went through, like it also gets into some of the workflow. I mean, I know it's not a, a specific capability, and in some cases, maybe it's on the roadmap, but you start talking about complaint management, dispute management, some of the more complex service center use cases. If you go into commercial banking, uh, thinking about how you're managing disbursements and funding of some of your loans and kind of forecasting out that detail and and a lot more. Um, so when you're, when you're thinking about FFC kind of getting you to the starting line and giving you the data model and some of the workflows, maybe we can pivot a little bit into how do we take our point of view and our industry understanding with what's already in the product and, and help clients recognize how they're going to get more value out of the platform. Well, it, it's funny you mentioned the disbursement process. I was on a, uh, a dry run for a customer call earlier today who they consider themselves a corporate investment bank. But what, like, if you look at the processes they follow, it's much more in line with commercial lending than in like sheer investment banking that we would probably consider investment banking. And it was with the conversation we were having around setting up specific use cases for this customer. It was really related to drawdowns on those commercial loans and the disbursement process that they need to put into place. And what we had, where we had gone with it was from a, uh, I, me talking about the capability and the customer lifecycle and how they onboard loans and onboard the customers and ultimately get to that point of service and disbursement and walking through some use cases with the, the sales engineer the, to create that process to make it real for them. So a lot of what where I think we go to make things more applicable to the industry is, is showing them. I do a lot of talking and not enough showing, I think. 
Um, so it, helping being that active listener to what are you trying to achieve? What are you wanting to achieve with your technology? What are you wanting to achieve from a, the business goals perspective and trying to get them to at least something from a proof of concept perspective and make it real. I know you're looking for more of a concrete physical example of like a tool. Um, and I talk in a lot in the abstract. Well, I like the proof of concept call out there because I, Elliot, I mean, you you live through PPP and how quickly you had to build some of those things on the platform. And I think there's a lot you can do really quickly if you're open to testing and trying some things and failing fast in some of these cases. But I mean, one of the, we talked about commercial just now, but also treasury management. I know we've been talking about that for a long time. And usually that's not prioritized in most implementations, like treasury management's along for the ride, but we're really not digging deep into their processes and their systems. Uh, Elliot, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you've been seeing in treasury and just how we've been able to use some of the FFC capabilities to really optimize some of those processes. Well, it comes down to, and Michael, you're kind of hinting at this, and you got to combine, you know, what is the organization's vision? What is their digital engagement vision or just their overall vision for the organization? Where do they want to get in the next 36 months, 48 months, 12 months? To the PPP example, that was a extremely significant one where, you know, we got to do this, we got to do this in the next two weeks. And it's like, oh my gosh, how are we going to achieve this? And that's what's nice about Salesforce. And the capabilities that it has is if you have to do it in two weeks, you can do it in two weeks. If you have to do it in a week, you know, it's going to be tough, but you can probably do it in a week or a weekend to achieve some of these milestones that you're trying to hit. But most of them are more drawn out. And some of the treasury example, the treasury example that you were just referencing is typically treasury management and treasury sales officers. They have a, you know, sometimes it can be a shorter deal cycle. Sometimes it's a longer deal cycle and treasury's a little bit different, which there could be 12 treasury services that an organization offers. There can be 75 or 100. So depending upon what these services are, the sales cycle and the onboarding for each of those services are going to be significantly different at times. And if an organization is trying to, we need to grow deposits, we need to grow commercial deposits or you know, some of our wire offerings or ACH, with treasury, using FSC and using Omni Studio, we have a you know, a custom onboarding process that as a treasury officer, you can start these treasury services as an opportunity and then create your performa, um, you know, generate the document and everything right with an Omni Studio. And once this service, you know, I'm going to say closes and now it's an onboarding, the onboarding process transfers straight to the the onboarding team, the treasury onboarding team right within FSC. And each of those onboarding services are going to be completely different based on what it is, you know, if it's ACH, if it's wire or lockbox, the onboarding experience is going to be completely different and it manage it's managed right within Salesforce case management. You can use action plans as another place where you can say, okay, now that it's reached this stage, now we need to go and train the train the customer on this lockbox or on this, you know, this wire offering. So it's something that we offer that's within Salesforce, within Omni Studio and FSC that can be you know, implemented fairly quickly as well. Yeah. The other piece that I was talking to a customer recently about some of their treasury processes, they identified that one of the gaps in their existing tool set was the inability to do like a product sales based off of like customers and the products they have. Their example was I service 10 hospitals, nine of these 10 hospitals have six products. This other hospital has four products. I have no idea that I can't see that product mix at a good good enough level to do 
white spacing. And that becomes a conversation around what, what's the data that's driving that? How do you surface that and visualize it in the Salesforce to make it actionable for those, those treasury reps so that they can go out and actually sell, sell to those customers? Well, I think the other thing too, on kind of measuring success and your value you're getting out of the platform, we talked about this at the Chicago summit, um, some of the categories around renovate and transcend and how you're kind of climbing up the ladder of what you're getting out of the platform. And, and I think there is a, a real a real situation within a lot of the clients we work with and, and prospects too, is you have different business units that might be at a way different maturity level on the platform. And, that, and that's okay. Everybody doesn't have to be using it for everything right away. Some people start with commercial, some people start with service, some people start with retail. Sometimes we're starting with mortgage and marketing. It really depends on who, who's got the biggest need at that moment. But I think it's critical to really think about the platform strategy for how you're going to use it across the organization. And it's definitely not just a CRM at this point. I mean, we're talking about pretty complex workflows. We're talking about onboarding. We're talking about servicing and maintenance. The list goes on and on. And I think there's going to be more coming out here in the next few weeks at Dreamforce as well. So we're excited to see kind of what's next and how we can incorporate that into our portfolio. Yeah, it gets to that implementation question of do you go wide and skinny or deep in one line of business and and what are the prioritization for the next capabilities? Is it continuing product depth across that one line of business or is it starting to build out little by little across? Yeah, it's one of the common misconceptions that a lot of people have is they think Salesforce, well, it's just a CRM. You know, that's that's all I'm doing with them. It's just a CRM. When I mean, that's how we grew it at our original organization. JP is just kind of going around and finding out what are you managing with a spreadsheet and in an email inbox. You know, if if that's if it's happening that way, well, you know, I monitor, you know, all the products or all the treasury solutions that are coming in and customers they need to train. It's this spreadsheet and it's this email inbox. Well, and then if I start working and I, I put a flag on it so my team knows that I'm taking that and it's already being worked. Well, you can take that whole process and pretty quickly transition that and move it into Salesforce and manage it right in Salesforce, and you get so much more reporting, so much more data out of it than your email inbox. The change management is a piece that's also difficult, which people are so used to managing it in the email inbox, they're used to it, and the change is scary. And that's one of the things that's commonly set aside. Well, we're just gonna build it in Salesforce, still start using it. Well, there's a whole change cycle that needs to happen as well. Yeah, and it's not just that change during the implementation, it's how do you how are you as an organization structured to manage a product like Salesforce long term? Do you have a center of excellence type mindset or a product management mindset and hierarchy and st- the structures in place to support it? Otherwise, a, a tool like Salesforce can quickly consume an organization unless you understand how to harness the power and harness your harness it for your organization's benefit. Well, that's a perfect segue to, I think, the last topic I want to cover is, so we talk about COE governance, setting up a product management mindset. Like, what are some of the tools you really need to be successful? Um, I, I know AppExchange is robust and has a lot to offer. I know we're always a little bit surprised when we work with certain clients and maybe they own some products that are pretty important to have implemented as you're managing your long-term implementation, things like Shield, backup solutions, uh, your DevOps process. So would love to hear from you two. Um, what are some of the most critical tools you see being leveraged the most or something that you definitely think people should be planning to leverage if they aren't already? I'll, I'll steal a line that I that I presented last week with, with Elliot, that if we have not spoken to you as, an, as a Salesforce org owner, or product manager about Shield, we're doing you a disservice in terms of how to secure your implementation. So that I think that that's 
one of the, the biggest pieces that could or potentially be missed in a sales cycle. It shouldn't, but it, it could be. Elliot, I'm curious to get your your take because I'm I'm upstream on some of the sales cycles and I don't see a lot of the implementation detail after the fact. Um, if if you're if we're talking like things that like Shield is number one on my list. Like it's if you if you're a financial institution and you do not have Shield, I'm just like why? Like that you have to have it. Um, it's so important for many many reasons. You know, it, there's a lot of different features. Well, all of them, the four the four of them all together are in, extremely important. Uh, number two, I think own backup. I know we, you know, we presented a little bit about own backup last week, but it's as a financial institution, if something happens, especially if you're using it for like loan onboarding or something like if you're using it for like an Encino, if something happens and that data is somehow deleted or even just a couple records and you have to get that back, like what is your resolution to get that information back and to back up all your information? I think that's extremely important. Another one that I actually miss using a lot is validity demand tools. There's a lot of different uses around it. You know, you can use it to upload data, insert records, things like that. But the other one is, which is the reason I'm mentioning it, duplicate management. You know, if you have people using it for inputting prospects, converting leads, maybe this leads already a customer and they don't do that. So it creates a duplicate. And over time, these duplicates just overload a system and you got to find a way to merge these together. And doing it manually is not the answer. A tool like Demand Tools, and there's a lot of them out there for duplicate management, but it's just the one I'm I'm very used to. Another one's Ringlead. But you have to be able to have a process in place to identify duplicates automatically and say like, I have the first name and last name matches, the social matches, the phone number matches, the address matches. That's a match all day. So let's just automatically merge them with all that if all that matches and then have a place to identify duplicates to that may or may not be a duplicate, but I need to review it and then merge them together. But a duplicate management system is so vitally important that a lot of organizations think they're just going to do it just manually. We're just going to identify these manually in a report and merge them together. But it's very time consuming. I've just, so you kind of queried my thinking with, with a few of those that you brought up. Another one that I know that you guys use a lot is gear set. So having a, a DevOps tool in place as well, too. Trying to manage deployments, especially as you move up market in terms of the size of an organization that you work with, that becomes overwhelmingly difficult. And if you start to look at Tools like Encino that are record-based configuration, well, you change that aren't going to work for you. And you need a tool that can migrate data in addition to capabilities and, and objects and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I would add to like there's not all app exchange packages are created equal. Obviously, some are way more complex and need a bigger consideration before you just go after it and try to plug it into what you're working with. And Back to the whole platform strategy conversation, Michael, you mentioned Encino. I know there's a lot of apps out there now that are, are pretty complex, robust solutions that coming into your org takes some thought and some consideration and, and likely a, a pretty decent size implementation. So I think it's important to really think about where you're going long term, um, your org strategy as well. Are you going to have one org or multiple orgs you're getting into these platforms? So a lot to consider there that might even need to be its own episode here at some point uh, to go deeper on some of those. We can we could talk for a long time on org strategy. I think I we have internal to the enterprise architecture team, we have these things called architectural offerings. So if anybody listening wants to ping your account executives, talk to an EA and figure out about your org strategy, I think I deliver that one more than any other 
AO. We talk in acronyms too. One of the questions I had for you, Michael, real quick is, have you messed with user access policies at all yet? That's one of the new features. It is beta that I think a lot of people should be getting into because we're, we live in a day now where Salesforce has already announced they're going to be going away with object and field level permissions in a profile. So we're using a lot of permission sets, permission set groups. I can tell you on all of my new projects, I don't even set up profiles at all. I do, but not for field and object level permissions. Um, but user access policies is a beta feature that I think is another one that is a game changer. You can basically set up and say, this per this user set up, they have this role, they have this field checked true. Because of that, assign this permission set group, or you could even say assign these 25 permission sets. Um, it's one that I think is another one that is a game changer and can save a lot of time for org setup. I would tell anybody that has a relatively clean org and or is new to Salesforce to ignore profiles and go straight with permission sets and permission set groups. I think that the the writing is on the wall. I, the timeline for when profiles would go away is probably measured in years, if not a decade. Um, so it's not something that is imminent, but they've started to deploy different tools to allow you to see how to migrate away from profiles and onto permission sets and permission set groups. There are tools like Encino that are going to have to refactor some of how they're managed because I think they're all through profiles and you can't do the access management through permission sets. So that it, it's likely to be a, we make an announcement, wait for partners and wait for uh, ISD solutions to refactor some of their code before we start to figure out what the end of life timeline looks like. And that's all underneath the safe harbor statement. You should probably flash yeah. that like forward looking <laughs> statement across everything that we say. Uh, we're going to have JP record like just a message and he's going to read the entire safe harbor statement at the beginning of every podcast episode. We need to hire the micro machines guys so that he can do that. And we can just provide that to every, every time we have a conversation, because I'd really love to talk about some of the roadmap for GPT stuff too. So we we've talked a lot, um, got a lot of nice insights here. So, you know, like you said, we could talk all day about these different topics, but we're going to get this winding down and close it up. But before we do, as we ask everybody, is there any fun fact that you would like to share on the podcast? It can be, you know, uh, a hobby, an interesting fact about you, something you've done that not a lot of people know about. What is something about Michael Shirell that is very interesting and, you know, just awesome story that you want to tell? And it could be, again, anything you want, alligator wrestling, intercepting a Super Bowl winning quarterback like JP has. What is it? I'm, you know, when, when I saw this question come from JP earlier today, I, I racked my mind thinking of stuff. This was also what I'll, what I'll say is someone asked me about as an icebreaker, when is the one time that you've met a celebrity that you wish you didn't? And this isn't as funny. I see JP laughing and nobody else on this, on this is going to understand. When I was a kid, my parents had season tickets to Pacer games and we sat uh, two rows behind Reggie Miller's wife. So there would always be a constant rotating cast and crew of stuff. But what that also meant is we were sitting low enough in the old school Market Square Arena here in Indianapolis that you, to, in order to go to the bathroom or go get concessions, you'd have to walk down the stands and into right by the visitor's locker room and then bring your Coke and your popcorn back out. I grew up as a mixed Pacers and Lakers fan because I was a huge Magic Johnson kid being a child of the early 80s. And Pacers, I still have the ticket stub in my, like somewhere in a closet. Actually, this closet right here, I just need, would need to dig it out to find the, the right date. 
It was in 1991. I remember that explicitly. I was bringing, went down, grab a Coke, grab popcorn out of the concession stand by the visitor's locker room, walking back out. Vladi Divac gets, tries to catch a rebound, falls out of bounds, and boom, just waylays me, knocks me over, doesn't say anything, just turns around and walks right back on court. 10-year-old kids sprawled out on concrete, Coke and popcorn everywhere. So the, the one time that I was starstruck at the same time as being just, this guy just ran into me, what the heck? And he's only what, like seven, two, 300 pounds, something like that? Yeah, he's a big guy. And I mean, I, I'm a skinny guy to begin with, and you can imagine 10-year-old Michael is even skinnier. <laughs> Oh, we'll have to make a make an episode around celebrity encounters where they go wrong. Athletes, celebrities, we might have a few of those in in our uh, guest list as well. I can embarrass myself several times with that. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. Really appreciate you taking some time to talk through some of these topics for us and for the guests. So thank you all for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. To learn more about Silverline, you can subscribe to the Silverline blog at silverlinecrm.com or follow on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook at silverlinecrm, one word. Talk to you all next time.